So if you're joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series over the last several weeks looking together at what it means to be a Christ-centered church. So we said that what it means to be a Christ-centered church is never wanted to have Christ as our end. Christ is our destination. And then we've said uh, to be a Christ-centered church is to have Christ as our Lord. All of life is all for Jesus. To be a Christ-centered church is to have Christ as our example. Uh, the very pattern of life that we are to embody is the pattern of life that was first set for us by Jesus. We said that to be a Christ-centered church is to have Christ as our final word, the one for whom or through whom we get a vision of what the true and living God is like. The fullest disclosure of God's true self is found in Jesus. And last week we talked about Christ, our Redeemer. Christ took our curse so that we might inherit the blessing. And this morning we're going to be talking together about Christ as our peace. And what we're talking specifically about is God's work in Jesus Christ to form a new community of people uh, from radically different backgrounds in one new humanity, one new church, one new family. You know, last week, here, you know that we had baptisms, and as part of our service with baptisms, uh, we introduced our service by reciting together the Apostles' Creed. And uh, the creed is a statement of Christian belief, and uh, the word creed is from uh, the Latin credo, which means I believe. And when early Christian converts were baptized, they would recite oftentimes at their baptism the Apostles' Creed. And so it would be the statement of uh, what their theological, kind of like what their beliefs were, what their commitments were to, that they were committed to the faith of the church. And right there in the Apostles' Creed is a statement that I think gets caught in the throat of a lot of Protestants. And it is that phrase, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I don't know, some of you last week were like, what are you talking about? What about I believe in the Holy Congregational Church? Um, I don't know about this Holy Catholic Church thing, you know? But of course, the word Catholic in its original kind of like uh, writing uh, is a Latin word, or it's from the Latin word um, that essentially means universal. And so to express belief in the Holy Catholic Church is the same thing as saying, I believe in, the, in God's universal church, the whole body of Christ made up of Christians from every tribe and tongue and people and nation spread throughout different continents and throughout different ages. I believe in the church. But isn't it interesting that at the baptism of early converts, that they were asked to express their belief in the church. Isn't it interesting that's, that's even in this early statement of Christian belief, the creed? I mean, I, I, I get, you know, asking people to express their confidence, you know, their belief in the virgin birth, or maybe the second coming, Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead, or even belief in God. But uh, belief in the church, I mean, I've heard of atheists but have you heard of awe churches, you know? Um, is belief in the church really that difficult? I mean, is it hard to believe in the church? Yeah. It can, right? You know, a, a lot of people, their, their issue with Christianity is not so much that they have a hard time believing in God, it's that they can't believe in the church. You know, uh, several years ago, there was an author named Anne Rice 
who converted to Christianity. And she was this author who was very famous for writing these very steamy, you know, gothic vampire novels. You know, and she converted to Christianity and she started writing these uh, books with Christ-themed uh, titles like Christ Our Lord Out of Egypt. And about a decade or so after her conversion that was very famous to Christianity, she posted this on Facebook. She said, for those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ as always, but no longer to being Christian or to being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. Do you see what she's saying? She said, look, look, I, I don't have a problem with Christ, I don't have a problem with God, what I have a problem with is the church, this hostile, disputatious, deservedly infamous group. And you know, I've talked to some of your children, and I've talked to some of you about your children, many who are not going to church anymore. And, you know, in talking with, with some of those folks, you know, you scratch below the surface, you know, they might initially, you know, express like arguments against God or against the Bible or something like that. But if you scratch below the surface, often you find that their real issue is that they've been hurt by the church. The church have let them down. Christians have let them down. Some of you, you know, I, I know for some of you, uh, Christianity or the church has been your lifeline. And you have experienced the goodness and the grace of God through the church, through his community. I know I feel that way about you all. I feel like you guys are a gift to me. But many of you, haven't you at times in your life been let down by the church? Haven't you found yourself disappointed because Christians don't live up to kind of the way of life that you would expect a Christian to embrace and embody? Or as G.K. Chesterton once said, by far the most powerful argument against Christianity are Christians. And some of you have been there, some of you are there right now. Maybe you're on the verge of kind of walking away because you've been so disappointed, you've been hurt by the church. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking together at a passage that really is an argument for the church. It's an argument on one level for commitment to church, but it's also an insightful diagnosis of what's wrong with the church and how the church can find healing. And so on the one hand, it's an argument for the church because uh, Ephesians 2 is actually this, 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 this passage that the first half talks about God's work in Christ to reconcile humanity with God. And you were dead, but God made you alive and raised you up and seated you together with Christ so that in the ages to come, he might show his extraordinary riches and kindness towards you. God rescued you with Christ. Why did Christ come? Well, it's to bring humans into relationship with God. But the second half of Ephesians, he moves from the divine human relationship to the, to the human human relationship. And he said that Christ not only died to reconcile us vertically with himself, but also horizontally with each other. There's this inextricable connection or unbreakable connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And so when God acts to reconcile humanity with himself, he also acts at the same time to form a new community where people learn how to get along. In fact, uh, listen to how he puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Look at what he says. I want you to see this. 
He says, for he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. So he talks here about the death of Christ. And he says, why is it that Christ died on the cross? Well, at least one reason why Christ died on the cross is in the second half of this verse. He says, so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. And so making peace. So listen, here it is. Christ came into the world, yes, to reconcile your broken relationship with God, but Christ came into the world in order to reconcile us together in a new community, a new humanity. And this is so exhilarating in Scripture because what Scripture goes on basically to say as you, as you, as you read this text is that this new humanity, it means that God is taking different kinds of people. Some of you were not born in the United States. Some of you are actually born citizens of Japan or Indonesia or Russia or Argentina. Some of you are born U.S. citizens. But regardless of your... Of your, of your uh, origin of your birth, in Christ we've been brought together as citizens in God's kingdom. The real borders that matter are the borders of the kingdom of God. And in God's kingdom, he is forming a, a new people from every tribe and tongue and people. He later says at the bottom, not only are we citizens of the same kingdom, he goes on at the very bottom of this passage to say that we are also members of the same household. God takes different people groups, different social classes, and he forges us together in one family. And then not only does he create us as citizens of one kingdom and of members of one household, but God acts in Christ to make us as bricks in God's one building. And so here's who you are. We are all together now citizens of God's kingdom, members of God's household, bricks in God's building, stuck together for eternity to be a dwelling place of God by a spirit. And it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you were born, it doesn't matter what social class or what job you've had or what kind of education you've had, God is bringing us all together in one equal humanity, one body. And what's so fascinating about this is that there are scholars recently have been doing work on kind of like the, what makes the West the West? Where is it that we got all of our values, you know, like our humanistic values of dignity and human rights and equal worth? And more and more scholars are saying, look, the genesis of human rights, the genesis of this notion of, of equality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the birth of Christianity that began to spread these ideas into the world. I was listening to an interview a couple weeks ago with a, uh, a British author named Tom Holland. And this guy's not a Christian, he's a secular humanist. And um, he, he's, he's, his, his kind of area of specialty, his area of expertise is, uh, is, is Roman history. And he loves kind of the stories of the gladiators and the Greeks and the Romans and all this stuff. But in this interview, he said, he said, it struck me, he said, when I read through the New Testament and then I read through the Greeks, he said, I found that as a secular humanist, I totally resonated with the writings of Paul where I was out of step with the Romans. And he said, that's because it is these writings, it is this notion of this equality of humanity in Jesus Christ, God's 
forming this new community where there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, you know, so on and so forth. He says, this is where we get these ideas. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that thrilling? And it's inspiring, but it's also difficult, and it kind of seems out of touch with how we experience church life. Anyone in this room with me on that? Well, you don't have to say it so forcefully. I'm just kidding. I, I, I would be the same. I would give the same response. You know, you've heard that little poem I've quoted to you before. To live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. And I've said that again and again because it's almost a truism. It's one thing to hear this talk of God's new humanity and the church and what it's supposed to be. And it's another thing to experience what the church actually feels like it is, which for Anne Rice became for her this disputatious, hostile, deservedly infamous group. Well, Paul in our text actually gives us a window into the very source of the problems that we experience in the church, and he shows us how we can find healing. Now, I want us to look at this text together this morning. On the one hand, yes, because it's the sixth sermon in my sermon series. And this is what I planned to speak on five weeks ago. But I want to talk to you about this text because I don't think there's any more passage of Scripture that is more insightful and more helpful for us becoming the kind of community of love that God is calling us to be than this passage. Because in this text, he opens up and he gives us a window into the very source of the issues that cause us to become hostile and disputatious, and he shows us how we can find healing. And notice he gives us kind of a window by showing us this metaphor. Look at what he says down in verse uh, 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he speaks in this text about this big wall that divides these two people groups. And of course, in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about the division between Jews and Gentiles, between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, which in the imagination of especially the ancient Jewish readers, this was the main division of humanity. There were the Jews who had the laws and who were culturally and ceremonially and theologically and in every way superior in their minds to those pagan Gentiles. And there was this big wall that divided these two groups of people. And Paul calls it a wall of hostility. Isn't that interesting? He calls it a wall of hostility. But what was the wall of hostility that, were di- that was dividing the Jews and the Gentiles? It's intriguing because he tells us what it is in verse 15. He says he, he took down this wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. In other words, what was the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles according to Paul? It was the law and the ordinances. Now, how could that be? I mean, like how could something good becomes something that actually created hostility between two people groups. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the the, the law became something that was a source of hostility. Now, is it because the law is bad? Class? No. 
In fact, Paul is going to later say in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's law is good and yet the children of Israel had taken this good gift of the law and the commandments and the ordinances and they had turned it into a wall that became a wall of hostility that divided them from other people groups. Well, how did that happen? Well, the law originally was given on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel in order that their life might be shaped together, that they might be forged and formed by their adherence to these laws that would govern how they lived on their land and how they treated each other and how they worshiped God, all of these laws governing all that. They would live into that, and then God would form them into a people who would serve as a light to all the nations. And so God gave them this gift in order that they might be a blessing and a light to the nations. But what did they do? Well, they took this good gift, and instead of using it to be a blessing to the nations, instead they used it to bolster their fragile and insecure selves and make them feel superior to the nations. There's that great little text in uh, Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a story of two men who go down to the temple to pray. One of, them is a prostit- or one, is a, one of them is a tax gatherer and the other one is a Pharisee. And the tax gatherer goes down there and he can't even look his eyes up to heaven. He's just like, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee comes in and his prayer is not really a prayer. It's an act of self-congratulation. And says, he says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like sinners. I tithe, I give, I serve, etc., etc. And I'm especially not like that guy over there. And do you see what he was doing? He was taking things that were good, tithing and uh, serving and obeying and all of that. But instead of taking those things as a gift from God that was intended to be a blessing to others, he takes them and he uses it to bolster his fragile and insecure self and to make him feel better and different than other people. Tim Keller uh, talks about how very often we have in our life what he calls identity factors. And he says identity factors are those things that make you unique from other people, that make you different from other people. And so there may be some good things in your life that your, are your identity factors, how you dress, the places you shop, uh, the food you purchase, uh, the kind of food you eat, the films you enjoy, the literature you read, the theology you know, uh, the job you have, your resume, the school you went to, all of these identity factors. These identity factors are those things that make you different from others. And what happens sometimes is we take what makes us different, these identity factors, and we say they make us superior to others. This is what Israel was doing. Now, aren't you glad none of us do that? Aren't you glad that none of us takes things, our political views, our... um, the way we manage our finances, the way we work really hard, our theology, and so on and so forth. Aren't you glad we never use those things to bolster our fragile and insecure self and make us feel superior to other people and look down on others with disdain? Aren't you glad you never do that? All right, let's just close in prayer.
Of course, this is how our sinful heart works today. It is so ordered that we take the best things about ourselves, even our virtues, we become proud of them, we use them to bolster bolster our sense of self-esteem and our sense of self-worth, and then we despise others who don't have what we have. And instead of saying we're simply different than other people, we say that we're better. You know, I remember years ago, listening to a, uh, a marriage therapist who was an expert kind of in his field, and he had counseled thousands of young couples, and um, he said this. He said, if I could boil down into one word the source of conflict in, in the marriages, if I could boil it down to one word, it would be the word Difference. He said, in a healthy marriage, he says, couples typically agree on 60, 70% of things. And then what creates conflict are not those areas of disagreement, or if those areas of agreement, it's the areas of disagreement. You have a disagreement about whether or not it's more important to show up somewhere on time or to look good when you show up. Uh, you have a disagreement about whether or not you should spend money on a car or uh, on the garage or so on and so forth. We have differences. And I remember hearing that, and I thought, you know, I think my marriage is better than that. Like, I feel like my wife and I, like, we probably agree on 90, maybe 95% of things. Like, we seriously, like, we see eye to eye, like, we resonate with each other. But boy, do we know how to have conflict about that 5%. (laughs) Like, we know how to argue about that stuff. It gets serious. But actually, it's, it's more than just difference that's the source of our conflict. It is really the superiority to the different that creates conflict in our lives, in our marriages, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, and in the church. And there are two different ways in which the superiority to the different kind of plays out that I've seen in the life of a church. And one deals with what you might say are amoral differences. And so within this room, we have amoral differences, differences that are not matters of right and wrong, good and evil. They're just kind of preferences. Sometimes they're cultural differences. And so look, Star Wars or Star Trek? Coffee or tea? Beer or wine? You know, a red carpet or hardwood floors in the sanctuary? Uh, a minimalist, kind of modern and yet ancient, historic-looking wrought iron chandelier or something more gaudy. You know, we've got differences. We have differences of opinions. But so, so there's all kinds of differences. We can't even begin to get into all the different amoral differences we have in this room. And what do we, or we could, you know, Christ Church or Sierra Madre Congregational Church. There are amoral differences we have in this room. But what do we do? Well, we moralize our preferences. We say, look, this isn't that we're different. It's that I'm good and you're evil. And sometimes we even frame issues to say, like, you're going to get rid of the carpet? You must be accommodating to the, to the awful sexual norms in our culture now. It's like, <laughs> how did you connect those two things? And what happened was, well, you're moralizing a preference, and it's creating hostility and division. 
and it's also bolstering your own self-image and your identity while you disdain someone else. Anybody here ever do this? No, of course you've never done this. And not only do we moralize our preferences and our cultural differences, sometimes we emotionalize our preferences and our differences. Some of you, like, you don't know how to be in a relationship with somebody who has any kind of disagreement with you because you are so fragile and insecure that if somebody doesn't like your opinions or your preferences, you get, you're just destroyed. And so we feel like we're walking on eggshells around you. And it's because you're, you're so insecure inside that, like, you don't know how to handle anybody who disagrees with you. And so we have amoral differences. It creates this wall of hostility. I am different and better than you. But what gets really tricky is we not only have amoral differences, we have moral differences in this room. You see, the, the answer to this problem of having difference is not simply tolerance according to the new definition of tolerance. The new definition of tolerance is, is hey, um, let's just affirm everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as tolerant as you. But the problem with that is that position is absurd and no one really believes that. Every single one of us does believe that there are right and there are wrong. There are things that are true and there are things that are in error. It is true that the earth is round. It is false that the earth is flat. Mother Teresa is just a more moral example of a human being than Hitler. Like there is better and worse. There is good and evil. There is right and wrong. And so we don't get out of kind of like the, the problem of difference by simply saying, well, we're all right. Like, no, like, some of you are, are you're, you're wrong. All of you are wrong, at least with something, you know? Like, we have, we have interpretations of the Bible that are wrong. You know, I remember hearing a, a Bible scholar once say, he said, he said, I know that at any given time, at least 20% of the things that I, that I believe about the Bible are false. The problem is, is I just don't know which 20% they are. And, and there are areas in which we're, we're wrong, we have bad opinions, our way of life is out of step with the way of life that God wants us to live, and yet we think it's in step with the way of God. And, and so we, we, there are things that are right, and there are things that are wrong. You don't, you don't get away from like the hostility that difference evokes through tolerance. And here's the tricky thing, is when you do get to right and wrong issues, issues of truth and error, correct Bible interpretation, theology, the way the church ought to be faithful to God in this current age, when you get to these areas, like, these are huge sources of bolstering your own fragile, insecure self, because what you have on your side against them is God. Now all of a sudden, you are not just right, like you are very right. And all of a sudden, you start getting God on the side of your politics and on the side of your Bible interpretations and your, your, your opinions about social life and this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden, you have this core source of disdaining and despising other people. And, and what's, what's the answer, though? How do we get away from, from these kind of differences that create hostility among us? If it's not through tolerance, how do we get through it? Well, according to Ephesians, it is through the gospel. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter, 
uh, 2 again. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, through the event of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that wall that you build that represents your differences from other people that you feel like make you better than them or even feeling worse than them, Jesus came into the world to destroy that. And he came and preached peace, Paul says. He came and preached peace, verse 17, to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's saying, look, Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy this wall of division and to create a new humanity that is marked by oneness and love. And how does he do it? He does it through the gospel. And what does the gospel say? What does the cross say? Well, on the one hand, the message of the cross says that you are worse than you imagined. The cross actually flattens us all. There's a, a preacher that I listen to sometimes in San Francisco, and he oftentimes, before a sermon, he prays this prayer. He says, Lord, help us to realize that although we are all so different, at bottom we are all the same. We are all more sinful than we realize, but we are all more accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Listen, what is most fundamental about all of us in this room? What is more fundamental than your education or your theology or your opinions and preferences about names and carpet or whatever? What is more fundamental and that unites us more is that we are all created in the image of God and we are all broken because of sin. Like we're all broken, marred images of God. As Miroslav Vos once said, we have solidarity in sin. Or as Billy Graham was fond of saying, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. I am no better than you and you are no better than me and this is what is most fundamental about us. All of us stand as broken sinners in need of the grace of God. And so we are image bearers who are broken but what is most, fundal, most fundamental about us is not simply that but we are also all objects of the affection and the love of God in Jesus Christ. God has acted on our behalf by sheer grace apart from all efforts. And so you had the Jews over here on this side of the wall with all of their laws and all of their ordinances that they were not living up to. And then you had the Gentiles over here who threw off the laws and the ordinances, didn't know anything about them. And Jesus comes to rescue both of them from their brokenness and to bring them both to God through himself. And so this is what unites us together. We are all more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. And yet in Jesus Christ, we are all more loved than we ever dared hope. And this brings us together. 
You know, C.S. Lewis once said uh, in his book, uh, The Four Loves, he's got this great chapter on friendship, and he says, a friendship is formed when you look at somebody and you say, what? Me too. It's like, you serve me too. You, you, you love Mac? Me too. Coffee? Me too. And listen, we all look at each other, and we can say, look, you have failed, you have broken yourself and your own life, you have messed up, me too. You are an object of the eternal, the unbreakable love of God as a father, me too. And this brings us together in a new community of love and grace. You know, in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite our band to come up, or Bobby and um, Kellen to come up, and the servers to come forward, and they're going to serve us the bread and the cup. But I, I just want to close our sermon by applying it in this way. You know, I, one of the things that struck me about this church when I, when I first came here uh, was I noticed across the street on the big sign, the like monument sign, that it said Sierra Madre Congregational Church, and then underneath the sign there was a tagline. It said a gospel-centered church, or gospel-centered fellowship. You guys seen this? Now, what does that mean to be a gospel-centered fellowship? Well, I assume that maybe it was originally put on there because a lot of people, when they saw that word congregational, uh, the vast majority of churches that carry the name congregational in our country are liberal churches. And so maybe it was put there in order to say, no, look, we're not liberal, we are gospel-centered, which can mean that we are faithful to the gospel, we are true to the gospel, we preach the gospel, we know the gospel, we are right about the gospel. And of course, being a gospel-centered church does mean all of that. But to be a really gospel-centered church is much more. It actually means to have the gospel go down into the depths of our being and start to restructure our hearts for the gospel to actually humble us so that I don't walk around with my superiority complex, like I am better than you because I'm different and smarter. I like better films and uh, better music and better literature and all of that than you. I have better theology than you. I'm better than you in every respect, and so I am good and you're bad. The gospel humbles us, and to be gospel-centered is to have a deep humility in our relationships with each other. And to be gospel-centered means that we are no longer walking around as fragile, insecure people. Like, the eternal, unbreakable, unending love of God has been set on your life, and it will never end. You are okay like, look, many of you have failures in your life, failures in your past, failures in your family. You're, 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 you're embarrassed, you're ashamed if they only knew what was going on inside of your life. You are loved by God. You don't have to be so insecure. People can disagree with you and it's okay. Your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your friends, your coworkers, people in this church, we can, we can disagree and it doesn't have to threaten our very identity because our identity is fixed in Jesus Christ. We have been crucified and raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places and been just 
overcome with an ocean of God's love and blessing and gifts in our life. And so we can rest in that. And to be gospel-centered means to be humbled, but also to be deeply secure in the gospel. And then to treat each other with humility and with love and with grace and respect. And may it be that what marks out this church in the months and years ahead is not our great website or signage or any, you know, our nice building, you know. Our building's going to be awesome, by the way. It's looking good. But that doesn't really matter. Like, what matters is the kind of community we are. And is the gospel going down and transforming us? This is what our hearts need. This is what you need. This is what I need. Now, we close our time together. I want to invite Bobby and uh, Kellen to come on up, our servers to come forward. We, we close our time together at the Lord's table. And, you know, in this practice, we are reminded of that last night before Jesus was crucified, and he took that one loaf, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. And the body of Christ was broken in glad self-giving and sacrificial love, passionate love for you, so that he might take our broken lives and form us together in one new body, one new humanity in himself. And when we share in this practice and you partake of the gluten-free cracker and the, the juice... It is a reminder to us, once again, we are reaffirming that we are together one body. Though many, though different, in so many ways, we've been brought together in Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, and then our servers will distribute the bread and the cup. Go ahead and hold on to it, and then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, don't feel uh, compelled to participate in this. But if you're a Christian, it doesn't matter what kind of tradition you're a part of, where you were baptized, the mode you were baptized in or whatever, like you have been invited to the family meal with Jesus Christ, and so we welcome you to this table to share in this practice with us. Let's pray together, then our servers will distribute. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you have acted in Jesus Christ to take us who are many and different and various and to form us together in one, com one new community. God, so work the gospel in our hearts and life and right down to the very fiber of our being so that we actually live in this community as people who have been redeemed by love, people who are image bearers and yet broken and yet objects of your great affection. Would you enable us to treat each other